We are here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate in London for episode 42 of Blockchain Insider. I'm Sarah Koshansky, filling in for Simon whilst he's away. So today we are going to bring you Santander rolls up blockchain-based money transfer service, Barclays commissions cryptocurrency trading desk, question, and an interview with Cardano's Charles Hoskinson. I'm not alone today in the office, however. Blockchain Insider is happy to once again have Sarah Feenan joining us. So how are you today, Sarah? I'm very well, thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> Just this, is, this may get slightly confusing. We'll work this out as we go along. I think we have a similar <laughs> accent as well. So, And joining us from a remote location, a gentleman who does not have a similar accent, Colin G. Platt. How are you doing, CGP? I'm not even sure I have an accent at all. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> how are you doing over there? Near a field? Isn't that the joke? I'm near a garden and it's warm, but you know. I didn't know you were allowed to make the, the field jokes. Uh, I thought I had to make the field joke. <laughs> I thought it was a requirement. It's mandatory. Well, I will tell Simon. Okay, cool. Let's kick things off. So, first story today is Santander rolling out a blockchain-based money transfer service with Ripple. Now, this has been rumoured about and rumbled about for months and months. Um, it's finally gone live for uh, retail banking customers in Spain, the UK, Brazil and Poland. Um, customers in each country are going to get different payment options. So, customers in Spain can send pounds to the UK and dollars to the US. Customers in the UK will have different options. The title of this service is uh, Santander OnePay FX, which I think is particularly snappy. It uses a Ripple product called XCurrent, which is based on distributed ledgers, but it does not use XRP. Am I correct, Colin? That's what I understand. Um, yeah, so as you said, this is a retail service. For some reason, they're using a distributed ledger underneath it. Santander runs all the nodes from what I can tell on this and uh, controls all the customers. So I don't know why they can't do this just on their own internal service. Hey, but it's it's cool that they have something so that people that want to send money between Poland and Brazil can do that cheaper, I guess. Yeah, and it's good on that note to see a blockchain project going live too. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, that's the interesting thing is to see, um, you know, a big bank actually get something live and out there. And yeah, I know it's limited customers and yeah, I know it's limited currencies. But, you know, the more we see stories like this, the more the more sort of uh, confidence builds, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. And it's a mobile based application. It's been in the works for 18 months. So good on them for getting it live. Yeah, I mean, so often you hear these uh, these announcements and then you never hear from them again. So at least with this one, we have heard from them again. I think that's the positive from this story as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Okay, so shall we move on to our second story, which is Coinbase has just bought one of Bitcoin's best funded startups. Uh, so Coinbase has announced the acquisition of a company called Earn.com. Uh, Sarah, can you give us a little bit more insight into what this is about? Yeah, sure. So Earn.com is a monetized two-sided social network that individuals can join when they have a certain expertise or role, such as Python developer. So they build themselves a profile. And then on the other side of that network, businesses can reach them in a list. And the the ask is to complete a survey or a task. And they get paid for it, basically. It's a monetary incentive to complete that task. So from what I can gather, the businesses will pay in, in US dollars, or fiat at least, uh, and they'll pay only when somebody replies. So they won't pay for the reach, they'll pay for the replies. And then those individuals get paid in BTC. And actually, Earn.com used to be called 21 Inc. And this is a pivot from their previous focus on Bitcoin mining hardware. Uh, I think this is an interesting business model, actually, the, the monetization of a two-sided social network and uh, kind of 
you know, puts the power back in individuals' hands for them to actually earn some money from their data. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not that unusual a model to, to do this. Um, you know, a lot of stay-at-home mums do this kind of thing. They earn money from filling in surveys and from, from completing basically administrative tasks for like a lot of recruiters, you know, pay stay-at-home mums to do this kind of administrative stuff. But obviously the two interesting things here are both the pivot, the fact that they can be paid in Bitcoin and the size of this deal. Colin, do you want to give us a bit more on that? Yeah, I thought, I thought what was interesting for two different reasons. First, Coinbase has been very, very conservative about which coins they list inside their, their services. Earn21, for a lack of a better way to do it, has been very loose on their standards on which tokens and ICOs they do. And actually, one of their big services as of late moved away from this getting paid in Bitcoin or, or anything else to do a service to just, we have your email address, we're going to drop you all these shitcoin tokens. I don't know how those two businesses work together, but it is a very large number. And some of the rumors that I'm hearing are they really just to get Balaji, who was also at one point, I guess, in the final stages of working for the Trump administration. So somebody with connections, I guess, to come on as their CTO. Yeah, so he was the CEO of Earn.com and he's become the CTO of Coinbase. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So that, that's what I understand from him. What I thought was really interesting about this was that they raised $121 million to fund 21 at, at the time, now Earn. And the rumor is they've been bought for $100 million. So that doesn't seem like a great return on investment, especially if they had just bought a bunch of Bitcoin at the time, as 21 would have suggested they were trying to do in the beginning and sat on that. They would have made a much better return than negative twenty million. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those that kind of remains to be seen. It could be sort of an aqua hire, as you said. You know, the idea was just to get hold of of Balaji, or or there could be more at play here, and and one that's probably definitely worth watching to see how it manifests in Coinbase's strategy. Yeah, for sure. And and actually, did they launched a token which is not an ICO? They. Um, emphatically add it's meant to be used in return for labor not in return for money so i presume that coinbase then won't be listing the earn token on the coinbase exchange Uh, but interestingly 30 percent of that token has been kept for the employees and the founders i know there was a lot of speculation on this as well because um andreessen horowitz is a early uh, investor in both companies and uh, balaji is somehow involved in the board of, of Andreessen Horowitz. Whether there's any anything more than just that uh, remains to be seen, but we'll see. Good luck to all of them. Keep our eyes peeled on that one then. Um, so the next one up, this is a story from Coindesk. Banking giant SBI, uh, one of their subsidiaries, has joined the R3 blockchain consortium. Um, so the bank said it aims to join the financial group to advance R3's quarter DLT platform, push cross-industry adoption of blockchain technology. Um, and the statement they issued was, we regard blockchains as the core of fintech innovation. And we're working on various measures, both in Japan and abroad. Um, SBI is a giant Japanese conglomerate. Um, through this effort, we believe that we can contribute to the progress of the global blockchain field, the group stated. Some interesting ones to dig into here. The, you know, the Japanese have been very active uh, in the blockchain space, but interesting given how close SBI is or was to our Ripple, or have I misunderstood that one? I think that SBI was doing a lot of tests with a lot of different companies, including Ripple, and they were uh, involved, I think, at, at, at least at a very light level with R3 previously. Um, and this is something where they're really going in. What I thought was very interesting from this press release was um, that it wasn't just the financial services focus. Obviously, that's their background. Um, they have a very good uh, understanding of that. But there's also, because they're a very large company, they can see where this fits in with a lot of other things. Um, and I think it's very promising that they're trying to say, 
how can we take our expertise and also extend that out into a variety of other industries? So big, big, uh, big win for our three here. And I think uh, this is something that, again, I, I will be watching very closely. Yeah. And back on the Ripple point, there was a story at the beginning of this year that SBI and Ripple formed together a joint venture. I, I believe it was part of a consortium, SBI Ripple Asia, which again is a, you know, a points to Asia. So it sounds like what SBI are doing is having lots of fingers and lots of pies. They they kind of believe in the they believe in the underlying technology. They're not quite sure which way they want to go with it. Um, so they're they're kind of investigating as many different options as possible. And you know, and, and as you say, it sounds like Asia is going to be one of the well the first region to sort of get their act together on this. Uh, you know, certainly Japan has has pushed uh, regulation through that's that's made it easier for people to operate in this field as well. Yep, it's very interesting. And that's one of the things that we've been talking to to people about as well is. Some of these technologies will work very good, uh, work very well in a particular use case. Some of them won't work at all in that particular use case. And, and working with, on one hand, the Ripple, they've also put out some things previously about uh, their views on ICOs. And then looking at how Corda can fit in is a pretty good strategy. Um, and, and that's something that I, I'm definitely interested in seeing companies kind of evolve towards because like every other technology, uh, it's not one size fits all. Yeah, agreed. Great. Well, speaking of R3, today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy. Using smart contracts, Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 in collaboration with over 160 of the world's largest banks and technology partners. It is ready to build on today. The financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and to move assets globally. Now you can transform your business ecosystem with the platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on, Corda. Go to Corda.net to learn more. You didn't make any field jokes in it. Uh, Our next story (laughs) comes from the ICO Journal. Um, And this is about Barclays potentially commissioning a cryptocurrency trading desk. The rumor is that Barclays has already started reaching out to hedge funds and institutional investors for this. Guys, what do we think about this? This is certainly not the first time we've heard rumors of big banks sort of moving in this field. Um, What do we think? From what I'm hearing, this is fact check equals true. They are moving forward on this. ICO Journal had another article that came out. Uh, People I'm talking to are saying that this is actually going to be a thing, whether it's in two weeks from now or a year from now remains to be seen. Massively, massively, massively positive if they go ahead with this. I know um, a few other banks have been looking at this, including Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, uh, at least from the rumor front. um, And I've heard of several other ones that are possibly doing it. Very simple reason. There is a lot of money to be made if you're a bank doing trading on these things because the spreads are huge. The market's very immature and there's a ton of interest. Whether it's going to displace anything at this stage, I don't know. Uh, I doubt it, but it could be a big revenue earner. And uh, to me, it's no surprise that banks want to move into this, but there are still a lot of unknowns. Um, And the people we're talking to that are already doing broking inside this business, already doing uh, key management custody solutions, are starting to see interest from clients coming in. It's really only natural that banks are getting asked and they're starting to move forward. I can't wait to see when JP Morgan gets a desk set up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and this does follow on from the institutional expans- expansion at the end of last year with the listing of Bitcoin futures. And like you say, Colin, there's massive returns to be had, so it's it's not really a surprise. But an initial red flag, I think, from my perspective, would be given the size of the market, the propensity to swing it with large orders, uh, not even necessarily trades. Um, but but equally, there's 
there's not really a standard way to value these kind of assets yet in a portfolio. So it does leave the questions of what will this, you know, look like in terms of valuing a portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I think that from, from my perspective, I completely, you know, as, as somebody who knows quite a lot about banks, but not an awful lot about uh, cryptocurrencies, I would say that, you know, the banks are going to go after anything they think can make them money. Um, so the the one the, the thing to be watching here is that the banks are only going to do this if they think they can make revenue. Will other people be burnt off the back of it? So if yeah. the big bank opens a cryptocurrency desk and it turns out that, you know, because of the things we've mentioned, the size, the volatility, the, you know, the difficulty in valuing those assets – people who go, oh, well, Barclays is doing it, it must be fine, might lose out, or how Barclays structure those trades, or how they structure the fees, you know, I would, I would have no idea how that would work. But that would be my concern with it would be, mm. I mean, the, the banks may well think they can make money off it. Um, but you know, who else might be hurt as a result of them doing that? Yeah, exactly. And there's, there, we already can see leverage trades in um, the cryptocurrency markets too. So that does create a lot more volatility and is arguably fine for those that are able to absorb that, but arguably not for the the more retail mum and pop traders, as we said. But then a lot of the regulators at the moment are trying to protect those kind of retail consumers or, or looking towards heightened protection of that. So interesting, very interesting. I have to imagine a lot of this is going to be done on an agency basis, meaning the banks aren't actually going to take the risk. They're just going to find a buyer and a seller and move it across and, and give you a safe place to keep these if you need them. Um, I, I think the downside in here for banks, aside from, you know, sometimes those things will fall apart, is they will be much more risk adverse when they attack these things for the reasons that you two have mentioned, uh, compared with some of the brokers that have been doing this for a little while. And I know they're all laughing saying we welcome this because we'd love more places that we could shove our trades into. Yeah, I mean, I think I think as we said, it's definitely the direction things are moving. Again, another one that will be interesting to see, and it'll be interesting to see who gets there first as well, because all those names we've mentioned today are absolutely doing something. Yep. You know, they're they're exploring it, even if they're not putting it out there. Especially JP Morgan. I'm sure Jamie Diamond's got tons of Bitcoin. I say that just of course. <laughs> Before we get into any more trouble. Um, Another another sort of story linked to Barclays here, but this is uh, from CNBC, and this this headline is absolutely. I, I think you guys would probably agree with me, or hopefully agree with me. Absolutely clickbait, but it says like flu season, the infectious spread of Bitcoin could be over, says Barclays. Hundred percent clickbait. Um, <laughs> just just checking, it wasn't just me and my old like journo instincts coming out there. The the quote here is brilliant. It says like infection transmission, especially to those with the fear of missing out is by word of mouth via blogs, news reports and personal anecdotes. However, once full adoption is approached, the price decline, the price decline sorry, is sustained and rapid. We believe the speculative froth phase of cryptocurrency investment and perhaps peak prices may have passed. So, I mean, the, the idea here is that it's the infected of the 0.1% of the population who first bought cryptocurrencies um, and then another sort of 25% of the population was susceptible to the new asset, mostly, you know, fear of missing out. And, oh, my God, and responding to those ads where it's like, make millions quick here on yeah. wherever it was. I don't know. There's many questions here. I don't know if we, how deep we want to go into this. But, Sarah, did you have some thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree with you in clickbait and... Um without meaning to, like you say, go too deep into the rabbit hole. But I do think this is interesting in the sense that it's taking inspiration from other industries other than classical economics and neoclassical economics to value assets, sort of. Uh, and it's potentially an acknowledgement of a more open, complex system as opposed to your closed economical model from before. But again, I might be reading a bit too much into that. And its headline is definitely clickbait. <laughs> but I would be interested to see a little bit more about their model. And for example, where did they get the 20% of... FOMO buyers 
25%, sorry. I've, I've just, I'd, I'd be interested to see a little bit more. So if anyone from Barclays who was interested, who was involved in that, please get in touch. Yeah. Are 25% of the population susceptible to flu at any one time? Is it- I don't know. And, and why do we model exactly flu with cryptocurrency? I just, I'd, I'd be interested to know how that analogy came about. Yeah. Although the spread of infection and, uh, you know, FOMO might be... There might be something in that. Yeah, yeah. I, I buy the, the the premise, as it were. Yeah. Colin, thoughts on flu and Bitcoin? Uh, I, I think it's interesting that Barclays came out with this right before the rumor dumped about them getting involved. So maybe are they fomoing into this thing? That, that's my my read across. I, I have no idea whether it actually makes sense. Um, I think it's hilarious, but uh, I'm sure at some point people are saying, "Yes, this dot com thing is like a flu infection. You'll get over it. We'll see." We'll see. And they do have said that peak prices may have passed. So just just so long as nobody dies, um, it'll all be fine. Indeed. Get your shots, people. <laughs> oh God, no, that's, that's a whole other rabbit hole. Um, so moving us on to our next story from Coindesk. So Malta is proposing a test to define when ICOs are security. Um, this is off the back of a consultation pub paper published last week. Um, the Malta Financial Services Authority is currently seeking public feedback. And basically, um, the summary of the paper is that it's basically designed a three-stage process that will test whether what category if you like tokens will fall into it is quite clear that what Malta actually wants here is to build a name for itself as a a blockchain hub or a cryptocurrency hub I mean I I find whenever regulators come out with these things a sort of on the one hand I'm like oh that's good there's some clarity there we need some clarity in in, you know cryptocurrency regulation on the other hand I'm like well are you trying to force a square shaped peg into a round shaped hole so um you know Sarah's somebody who has more insight into this than me. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there's a few different streams going on looking at defining what a crypto asset is, um, what category it falls into, especially from a regulatory oversight perspective. My concern would be they all come up with different ideas. And in a kind of global industry and global markets such as this, that adds an extra layer of complexity. So it would have been nice if everyone could work together. And I know recently there was the G20 and uh, everyone else kind of came out and, and check to use a poker poker term around the table saying they're not going to regulate it but it would have been nice to see coming from that a g20 task force as it were a working group or something to to try and hammer out some of these definitions uh across the board one thing that's really interesting about malta in financial regulations in general outside of all of our fun blockchain stuff they constantly are the first ones whenever a new eu regulation comes out to actually kind of sweep that into their law which sounds really weird um but that gives everybody this automatic, all right, we know we're complying with the law because Malta's done it and we're set up in Malta. This might just be kind of a, an extension of that to say, look, if we've got ICO rules, you want to do ICOs, come here. The fact that they've got Binance um, and OKX just, just announced they were moving down there means you've got a safe little harbor in Europe that you can set these things up if it fits into the rule. Um, I think the question still remains, given the global nature of all of these things, it's great if your, your ICO token is not as security in Malta. But if you're selling to American investors or Chinese investors, it doesn't really cut it. So um, interesting to watch. It will be interesting, as you said, how these things all, all align. Yeah, I mean, um, from my perspective, uh, you know, what I know about Malta is exactly what you said, that they set themselves up quite a while ago as a hub for um, online finance. You know, they set themselves up as the the hub for online betting and handling all the payments and online gambling that went through Europe. And they've made a huge, for, for a tiny little island that's mostly British expats, they've made a, um, a huge, a huge industry out of that. So I wouldn't be surprised if anybody can do it, they can. I mean, our, our very own 
Simon is obviously involved in the Global Digital Finance Project, which is designed to kind of hammer out some of these things on a global level. But obviously, that is never going to be an easy an easy task. And in the meantime, places like Malta are going to, as Colin says, move move fast and get in there first and, and attract as much business as they can. All those British expats on islands around the world. Uh, And our final story today is uh, from PR Newswire. Um, It says, Harbour raises $28 million to re-engineer private securities for blockchains. I'm going to throw that straight over to Colin. Colin, what on earth does that mean? I mean, it means nothing. Well, that's reassuring that it wasn't just me. (laughs) Diving into it. Harbour just raised $28 million, great for them, uh, from Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, Apparently they've got money and they want to spend it now, uh, now that they're giving their money back from Earn. What they're trying to do is basically inside of the public Ethereum blockchain, which has got Ethereum's coins and all these ICOs floating around, it says, we want to build a framework that only allows you to transfer your cool new ICO tokens in a regulated way, which means a regulator is actually sitting in and saying, yeah, you can move these things. It's a nice idea in theory. Um, $28 million is a lot of money for like what's already developed on GitHub to do that. And the big problem is going to be getting regulators to buy in. Um, maybe they'll have some luck with Malta. But again, it goes back to if really you just end up with an ICO token that can't move at all because the regulators you care about aren't going to sign off on it. it it's hard to imagine what they're going to do um, to kind of get past that point. Again, I wish them all the luck in the world. Uh, they're trying to go beyond just normal um, assets, and normal securities and things like that, and get into real estate, things like REITs. Um, I, again, I've got lots of questions on how real-world assets fit into a uh, especially public blockchain uh, idea because what happens if you lose your key? Does that mean you're not allowed to own your land anymore? Um, remains unclear to me. Uh, and if you just say, well, we'll just go back and issue a new token – What's the point of having a blockchain in the first place? Interesting. Another one to sort of keep an eye on. Um, headline grabbing, but again, we need a little bit more depth before perhaps we can uh, explore it properly. Do you have anything you want to add on that, Sarah? Looking through this, they have launched a regulated token or R token standard, which is uh, a system of ERC20 smart contracts built on, as Colin said, the public Ethereum blockchain. So it's, yeah, it's compatible with all of the existing Ethereum ecosystem, but getting regulators on board with a token, I think, is difficult right now until we get past the stage we just talked about with, you know, definitions and taxonomies and, and, and where that leaves this at some, in some cases, new type of security altogether. Let's also keep in mind that like CryptoKitties crippled the public Ethereum network. Um, and if you really start moving high value financial activities onto this in any meaningful way, you're going to cripple it again. Uh, and I know the Ethereum Foundation and the Ethereum developers are doing a ton to work around that. But we don't have a timeline on that and putting it on a public network for anything that is like how you own your own house seems risky at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to have $100 in a, in a new token or a cryptocurrency, having your, your home or your legal documents or your will. You know, that's another one we've talked about today um, on, on the blockchain is it's a whole other kettle of fish. Yes, entirely. I think getting the retail market, even the housing market to agree to something like that, where, as you say, Colin, (laughs) if you lose your private keys, you lose your real life keys as well. Who knows? So stories we didn't have time to cover today. Uh, A story from Bloomberg, which was titled, Yes, These Chickens Are on the Blockchain. CNBC, Why This Guy Paid $75 to Store Bitcoin Under His Skin. Business Insider, This cryptocurrency startup with a 12-year-old CEO is trying to solve a common frustration among gamers 
Oh, man, I have to read that one afterwards. <laughs> Real world problems. And finally, one from Coindesk on IOTA, the $3.7 billion crypto that developers love to hate. And now for our Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. So this week's Tweet of the Week comes from Aaron Van Verdem. Apologies if I've pronounced that wrong. At Aaron Van W. And it reads, The first electronic cash system wasn't Bitcoin. It was eCash by Chorm. This that he makes a reference there and links to a 1994 Wired piece by Stephen Levy, which makes it abundantly clear that cash referred to privacy and anonymity. The cost of transacting speed and ease of use were afterthoughts at best. Colin, do you have any thoughts on this one? Starting with what's eCash? <laughs> I have lots of thoughts on this one. So David was in was in Seoul and we caught up. Um, he gave a really good presentation about this a couple of weeks ago. Aaron's trying to make a point about um, the divide between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash in this tweet. One of the, the things that the Bitcoin Cash community is, is pushing is Bitcoin at the beginning was, was fast, reliable, cheap. Now Bitcoin is going down this road of this uh, store of value. And the, the Bitcoin Cash community is claiming that it's not that. And they're linking this all back into David Chum. Um, I'm not sure they quite caught all of it, but it is a really interesting thing to look at, at how David Chaum, who some people have speculated was um, one of the originating ideas with eCash of what ultimately became Bitcoin uh, in Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper. Uh, it was cool. Apparently, they just had like these stamps and you had like a little piece of software you could send money around um, and then you could redeem it at banks. And it was all bare. So quite a cool idea. Um, and it looked fairly easy to use and certainly a lot better than a lot of the ICO stuff I've seen. Interesting. Okay, so before we leave you today, Colin spoke to Charles Hoskinson on the future of Cardano. I'm here with Charles Hoskinson, the CEO of IOHK, which is a company that is a contributing core developer to the Cardano blockchain and cryptocurrency. Thanks for coming on today, Charles. Pleasure to be on here. Thank you for having me. So there's lots of things that you've been working on. You have a, a very long history in cryptocurrencies, blockchains. Very excited to be able to talk to you about the projects you've been working on lately, which include Cardano, as well as a few others that kind of came in before the launch of Cardano. Before we get started in that, could you just tell our listeners who haven't heard of you yet a, a bit about who you are uh, and what you guys do? So IOHK is a research and development company. We're kind of a unique firm in the cryptocurrency space where we uh, we work on multiple cryptocurrencies and we do everything from the peer-reviewed science side where we actually write papers that go through uh, the academic process at universities and conferences and journals. And uh, we go all the way to the engineering side and we focus on a very particular type of engineering, which is called high assurance software development. So it's commonly seen in places like NASA or the aerospace industry or the health industry, where uh, the failure of the software either results in the loss of billions of dollars worth of a product or human life or both. Uh, so we tend to borrow some of those software techniques, and we've been systematically bringing them into the cryptocurrency space so we can write uh, cryptocurrency protocols in a fundamentally different way so that they're more reliable. Maybe kind of for our less technical viewers, can you explain a little bit about how that particular process works, maybe how that's different from what we've seen in the development of things like Bitcoin or, or Ether? Yeah, so generally speaking, uh, when you 
write uh, a protocol like Bitcoin or BitTorrent, um, usually how that ends up happening is you, you have a single developer or a small group of developers, and they have a really good idea. And they don't really have a formal protocol or a specification. Instead, they just say, well, let's go experiment. And they iterate and iterate and iterate. And then they release it as a beta test. And people begin adopting it. And then they iterate and iterate. And they follow that process. And for the most part, most software is written that way, especially software out of startups. So if you're in Silicon Valley and you're following an agile process, that's generally where you go. And the goal is just to get it in front of the customer as quickly as possible. And there's kind of a back and forth relationship. The problem with that type of software development is you presuppose that you're going to make a lot of bugs and problems up front. And that's okay because you're always one or two patches away to somehow resolve those things. But the issue with cryptocurrencies is that if you make a mistake, that mistake may be permanent. There's already problems and flaws in the Bitcoin Core protocol, uh, like a multi-sig issue and other things like that, which is, to this day have not been resolved because they would either require a soft fork or a hard fork, or it's just too difficult to get consensus around it. And even parameters, like for example, the block size is really hard. So uh, when you live in a cryptocurrency or protocol-centered world, uh, if you make a mistake, the consequences of the mistake are very dire. So what you do to ameliorate this is you start with what's known as a specification. So what a specification is, it's basically a, like a mathematical description of what you want to accomplish. Uh, and that can be everything. Let's say you're writing a PGP client. There's an RFC for PGP. And the idea is that that specification is implementation independent. So it's not written in code. Rather, it's written in math and language. And any engineer should be able to read that and develop an implementation based on that. And it's as least ambiguous as possible. The holy grail would be to say that two independent engineering teams take uh, your reference spec, they implement it in a clean room, they never talk to each other, they turn them on, and then somehow they're able to, their implementations are able to talk to each other. For the PGP case, that would be, uh, you send me an encrypted email, I'm able to decrypt it, I send you an encrypted email, you're able to decrypt it, but we never actually talk to each other. So that's what specification-driven engineering is all about, and there's various levels of assurance that you can put behind it. Uh, if anything, just writing a spec helps you really clearly understand what you want to do, but then you can even take it a step further where you can generate a computer proof. It's called a bi-simulation proof that allows you to actually verify that your software matches the specification, meaning for every input into the spec, the output matches the output that you would expect from the uh, implementation that you've created. That's really hard to do. It takes a long time and a lot of effort. So not only happening inside the client level to ensure that when I do X on, on top of the your blockchain that's been developed this way, but I, I'm curious on, on how this would work on the things that are actually implemented. So let's say I, I decide I'm going to develop something on top of Cardano. Can Is this native inside of how the blockchain is actually set up that would enforce me if I wanted to set something up so that I don't have a, a DAO type situation. So blockchain is an aggregation of many protocols. And so you have a consensus protocol, you have a transaction language or you know, execution semantics, you have a network protocol. And that's kind of like level zero. That's the basement. That's the foundation that you live on. And then uh, for Ethereum onward, we, we made blockchains programmable. And so the idea there would say, okay, I'm going to give you, the developer, a programming language, and you're going to be able to write your own transactions, your own smart contracts. So in that particular case, the verification that we do at the basement doesn't really do much for you there. It assures you that the basement that you're building on is a strong foundation and it's designed correctly. But if you make a mistake in your code, uh, there's nothing I can do on my end to, to you know, prevent that. Rather, I can do is give you better tools and I can give you better techniques and methodologies and languages to develop in to reduce the likeliness of mistake. But that's like saying, well, you know, Microsoft can build a really secure version of Windows 
but you as the Windows application developer can still make a mistake with your app and deliver a poor user experience. So Microsoft can certainly do things to try to prevent you as a developer to you know, write a crummy app. But at the end of the day, it, the, the ultimate power is in the hands of the developer. So uh, for that, we actually are working very closely with Runtime Verification. Uh, it's a specialized firm in, in uh, uh, Urbana-Champaign in Illinois. And they specialize in things like programming language design and verified compilation and, and VMs and so forth. And they're actually working with us to build a really nice virtual machine called Yella and specialized tooling uh, so that we can deliver to developers to reduce the probability that they're going to have bugs. But that's a bit different than formal verification. Uh, and that's some, some very interesting points in there. So it's not only um, that you've built a better product, you're also partnering, but at the end of the day, it's still the person doing the development that has to go through those extra steps. And, right, make and sure. they might not want to. For example, let's say your goal is to build a rapid prototype and you've built into your contract the ability to update it. It's okay to then make mistakes. One of the issues with the DAO was that once it was set, they couldn't change it. But if they had built an escape hatch to update the contract, they could have easily corrected a bug or a problem. They probably didn't want to do that for legal reasons instead of um, technological reasons. And so, you know, it, it just depends on what is the software you're actually deploying, who are your customers, and what are their expectations. And in some cases, you really do need the immutability and unchangeability that a blockchain can provide you. And in other cases, you actually need to upgrade and mutate the software. So not everything needs to be high assurance, but certainly the thing that does need to be is the foundation you stand on. You'd like to know if you're investing millions of dollars of development effort into using a platform that that platform is correctly designed and it's uh, in, it's bug free. So let, let's get straight into that point on the platform. Tell me a bit about what is Cardano, what are the specific problems you're trying to solve that can't be solved by things like Ethereum or by Bitcoin, which are very different. What is the problem you're trying to solve and why did you decide to solve it the way you've done? So we, we look at Cardano as kind of the first third generation cryptocurrency or the, the most complete third generation cryptocurrency attempt. So if you look at Bitcoin, we consider that first generation and Ethereum, we consider it second. That They were really trying to solve different problems. Uh, Bitcoin was trying to solve less of a payment and scarcity problem, more of a social problem. It was trying to create a notion that somehow Bitcoin could be valuable. You know, this collective delusion that, you know, Bitcoin actually is worth something. You can trade it on exchanges, buy stuff with it. Uh, that was the major hurdle it had to overcome. But the minute that that set in, then people said, well, it's not very useful. I can't really do much with it. It's just kind of a push payment system. I'd really like to have programmability. So what Ethereum introduced was this idea of the smart contract and saying, okay, now you can have arbitrarily complex transactions and persistent programs that live on a blockchain. And let's go see what experiments we can run with that. Well, just like Bitcoin, Ethereum has been very successful. And as a result, people are starting to have opinions about what they'd actually like to do. And what they found is Ethereum doesn't scale. So there are really three design considerations that uh, we think the third generation encompasses. One is scalability, where as we move from thousands to millions to billions of users, we need systems that behave like BitTorrent, where as users join, you gain more resources. And currently, no cryptocurrency protocols really design that way holistically. Second, there's going to be a lot of cryptocurrencies, like thousands of them. And there's legacy systems like credit cards and bank accounts. And so you really need interoperability because the reality is even if there is a consolidation, there's not going to be a consolidation to one standard, there's probably still going to be hundreds of cryptocurrencies. So it's really important to talk about the internet of blockchains and creating standards and bespoke uh, primitives within a protocol to make it really easy to move value and information between your protocol and other protocols. And then finally, there's a kind of a meta problem that we've seen with Ethereum Classic and Bitcoin Cash and these other protocols in that there's a governance concern. 
And the governance concern is that, uh, you know, we, it's not innately clear how we decide how to change and evolve these protocols. And also there's a treasury concern in that it's not innately clear where we're going to source money to update and control these protocols um, outside of the ICO. And the ICO tends to introduce a great degree of centralization, but that's a finite event. So there's this thing called the golden rule. Uh, he who has the gold makes the rules. And uh, that's that's a big issue right now in the cryptocurrency space. And it's a sustainability problem. So if you look at Ethereum and Bitcoin, they're great protocols. They certainly accomplished the missions that they originally set out to do. But now everybody, EOS, IOTA, Hashgraph, uh, Aeon, Ripple, and even Ethereum itself are racing towards upgrading themselves to this third generation where we have true scalability, we have interoperability with many different systems that's easy and cheap, uh, and that we have some form of a governance system to uh, decide who pays and um, who gets to decide the vision and the progress. The other thing is that you'll, you'll notice that there's kind of a bifurcation amongst ledgers. There's a permissioned private ledger, and then there's this permissionless open ledger. And we tend to consider them to be very different things. So when we say, hey, there's Hyperledger and then there's Ethereum, they feel like they're really different, even though they have very common DNA. And the only difference is who controls at the top level. So the last part of what we're exploring is, can we blur the lines between the private permission ledger and the permissionless ledger and actually allow you to deploy an enterprise infrastructure that easily can talk to a permissionless ledger like Ethereum or Cardano, for example, so that you can move value between those two systems. Just a very quick example of where that would be really useful is let's say you're running an exchange. Right now, running, let's say it's Bitstamp, if I send you Bitcoin, it goes from one address on the Bitcoin network to another. And the network doesn't know you're an exchange and doesn't give you any special protection. So if you get hacked, you're at the same mercy as anybody else. But what if you could send your Bitcoin to a sidechain and that sidechain was actually controlled by the exchange and they have a lot more logic in there, like the ability to reverse transactions and so forth uh, that they can put in for consumer protections and to protect you against hacks and so forth. You're already trusting the exchange with your private keys. You're already trusting them to hold your money. So you're not really losing any privacy or control, you've already surrendered that. You're just now gaining consumer safety from that. So it'd be really nice to explore like where those boundaries are and how can we make it easy for an exchange to do something like that and uh, still be able to talk to a major network. So that's really Cardano Project in a nutshell. It's a continuation of what's come before. And it's a recognizing that there are some real problems in terms of scalability, interoperability, and sustainability. These are really big problems, and they're going to require a lot of new protocols, and a lot of new code, and a lot of new solutions. And it would be really hard to iterate an existing currency like Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, in a reasonable amount of time to get there because there's so much value at risk already. There's hundreds of billions of dollars in play there. So it makes a lot more sense to experiment with a smaller, more bespoke project. But if we get it right, I think we have a chance to actually become just as large as Bitcoin or Ethereum, perhaps even larger. And, and those are some really, as you said, very important problems that, are, that exist out there in the current uh, existing solutions that you guys are really tackling. And one thing that I really want to hit on and, and something that I was following a while ago on, on Twitter, it was um, there was another, uh, another large, uh, I don't know if I'd call it third generation project, but uh, a specific blockchain project called IOTA. Um, uh, there were some researchers and academics looking at this, which, and the reason I bring this up is because you're kind of the first project that I've seen really align yourself with the academics. The other ones have just kind of had them around, um, but it's almost kind of come in. IOTA's kind of taken a different thing. Somebody's pointed out maybe some flaws, some problems in it, um, and, and they push back very hard on it. Um, and I, I really liked your response where IOTA the foundation and some of the people behind it were saying, you know, we might actually take legal action against the, the way these researchers 
have put it in. And you were actually supporting them and saying, you know, we stand behind you. I thought that was a really good way to do it. But maybe you could talk a bit more about the importance of independent academics inside of these things that aren't necessarily just in the foundation. Yeah, just to clarify, I, I, I took the uh, I took the following position. So I don't I've never taken a position of whether the audit that was done by the DCI was right or wrong. I, I could frankly couldn't care less about it. Uh, it's it's more of about uh, proper conduct. So the reality is that uh, InfoSec audits, cryptographic audits, these are a fact of life for any product that makes assertions about security and quality. And uh, auditors, there's, there's, there's a delicate relationship between the auditor and the software developer uh, in that it's, you know, the auditor is basically exposing all of your sins and your poor decisions to the general public. But in that, there's this notion of fair disclosure. So the auditor has a moral obligation, an ethical obligation to inform the developers of the project managers prior to uh, a public disclosure of what they've found. Uh, and then there's usually a negotiation of what is the best way of releasing this information and the time frame to release this information. It's not, can we bury it and hide it and pretend like it doesn't exist? It's more of a, you know, can we release it next month so I have time to prepare a patch so that hackers can't take advantage of this potential vector? The challenge that I have with IOTA is that instead of following the normal process, and by the way, we've been audited as well. Kodelsky Security, for example, did an audit report of Mantis and found bugs and we fixed them. Uh, instead of forming the normal process of going back and forth and saying, okay, uh, this is how we're going to fix it, they've just basically said, uh, everything you found is not real or it's all theoretical and there's no example and, and, and you shouldn't release any of this. And then the auditor said, well, we're auditors, we're going to release it. And they said, well, then, you know, don't. And then they broke off communication. Uh, and then the auditors released some stuff. Then IOTA personally attacked them and said that they're biased or they have a conflict of interest and they're horrible human beings. And then some people even threatened potential legal action. And I felt as a member of this space, regardless of what your opinion is of whether IOTA is great or wrong, that is going to damage the relationship with InfoSec experts and uh, cryptographers in cryptocurrency projects. So now moving forward, people who would normally work with me or Vitalik or Dan or any other project would now say, well, maybe I don't want to do an audit of Cardano because if I do and I find something, I'll get sued. So I felt it created an existential problem in that relationship that we rely upon to actually verify that what we've done is, is correct. So what I said is, I'm not going to take a position, but uh, if uh, you guys sue the DCI, I will offer to pay their legal fees, if anything, just to, to provide some level of assurance to InfoSec experts that they're, they're covered and that the cryptocurrency space isn't going to harshly punish them for commercial reasons rather than academic reasons. But then to a broader point, I think we have a systemic crisis in the cryptocurrency space about verification of claims. The reality is there's a lot of tech, and there's a lot of scientists now, people with PhDs from good universities writing lots of math on paper, and normal investors and normal people and VCs, they really can't make heads or tails of it. They say, okay, I hear unlimited scalability and DAG this, and there's some quantum cryptography here, and, and there's lots of crazy-ass symbols on the paper. I can't read this. So what ends up happening is uh, we tend to create cults of personality around people where we say, ah, well, I trust Vitalik or Charles or Dan, and I really think they're very bright, and uh, I'm just going to go believe that person. When in reality, that's the most dangerous thing you can do. The smarter a person is, it's easier it is for that person to deceive you and deceive themselves. The canonical example is Kurt Gerl. This is a guy who literally broke math. He proved that mathematics is incomplete. 
uh, and it can never be made complete. It's got a hole in it. You can't fill it because of the way math is constructed. He was one of the most brilliant logicians in human history. Very rational, super logical guy, very reasonable person who, by the way, died starving to death, believing that people, communist agents were poisoning his food. He was a paranoid schizophrenic. So this is a guy that, like, on one hand, is so logical that he can undo the laws of mathematics. But then on the other hand, uh, he's like the homeless guy on the streets in San Francisco thinking government agents are poisoning him. So just because you're really smart, and really talented doesn't mean you're not above self-deception or you're not above the ability to uh, to deceive others. So what we tend to follow at the Cardano Project is the trust but verify approach, where we say, if I'm going to make a scientific claim, great. I have an obligation to take it to people who know what they're doing, who have no stake in the game, and have those people either tell me I'm crap or tell me that I've done something reasonable. And usually it's somewhere in between. Now, it turns out for 400 years, we've been, as a community, developing this thing called peer review. It's given us all the science we have today. And the reason why my laptop works and the reason why your video camera works is because of that process. So that process is pretty good. It has its flaws, but in the computer science world, it's actually very responsive. It's pretty fast, and it's not subject to the biases you would see in things like gender studies or you know philosophy and so forth. It's generally a very objective process. So what we do is we write scientific papers, and we submit them to IACR conferences. It stands for the International Association of Cryptological Researchers. There's four or five major conferences a year we tend to submit. They're spaced about every three months. And a lot of these conferences accept only about 20% of the papers that are submitted there. That's very harsh and very rigorous. And these are papers submitted amongst people at major universities like Cornell and Harvard and MIT and so forth. Uh, and just because you get accepted actually doesn't mean the paper is okay. You still have to show up and defend the paper. And then it actually creates an incentive for other researchers to find a flaw in your system. Because if they do, they can publish a paper about it, and they get academic credit for it, and they can then break it. So it means that I now collectively get access to the broader cryptographic community, in many cases, people that you could never hire. For example, Adi Shamir has got a Turing Prize, that's the Nobel Prize in Computer Science. And more importantly, he's filthy rich. There's no way you can go to Addy and say, hey, can you come work on my project? If he doesn't want to do it, he doesn't want to do it. But he still shows up to the conferences. For example, I'm going to be on a panel with him next week at CTRSA. And uh, if you're engaging him in that, that way, he'll actually take you seriously, read your paper, and give you feedback and advice. So that's literally a person no one can hire. Microsoft can't hire him. Google can't hire him. I can't hire him. But using this process, I give him an incentive to actually try to think about my problem and tell me what's wrong with it and so forth. So, for example, one of our papers, Ouroboros, we published in 2016. Uh, since we published it, it's already been cited over 50 times, and seven papers have been written about it, including one sharding scheme called OmniLedger. Now, we didn't pay for any of that. It just came naturally out of the academic process, and we've learned a lot from that process. So I think this is great for the investor and for the regular cryptocurrency person because it says there's an objective milestone that's independent of the project verifying the claims that are being made are correct, and it's very rigorous because four out of five papers are rejected. So being accepted does mean something. And second, it's good for the project in general because it gives you the ability to talk to a different group of people you can't hire and that group of people are generally some of the smartest people in the world. Now, it's not the only thing. It doesn't guarantee your results are going to be practical or that you can implement them properly. You have to use different things and be a bit pragmatic for that. So there's certainly an engineering side of it. But I think it's a brick in the wall that you have to build to be able to build a proper protocol. And I think that's a, that's a very good way to look at it. And, and it's a very positive sign to me that um, you've taken that very mature, educated, well-rounded approach um, rather than just trying to, to push up the value and turning down things as we've seen, as we pointed out, other projects have done. 
Um, so for the people listening, what what should we be looking out for? What are the I, I hesitate to use the word milestones, but what are the what are the big things in the next um, three, six, twelve months, uh, and things that you'll be happy to see the Cardano project and community take on? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're really, really focused on uh, moving from Byron to Shelley. So Byron it was the initial release, so it's a full mainnet. We're running Ouroboros. We're running a proof of stake protocol. But by design, it's kind of set up like Ripple because we didn't want to just invent a new protocol out of thin air and you know launch it and say day one, here you go, guys, good luck, uh, have fun, I hope it works. We we wanted to kind of release it in milestones and stages and, and learn as we go, and also because it's a totally new architecture and new platform, it was to be responsible. You need to have some checks and balances and some recall points and so forth in just in case you make a mistake. So what we're doing now is transferring the network over to the general public in a very systematic way. So Shelly is all about that, the peer-to-peer networking uh, or running Ouroboros with stake pools and delegation, turning on block rewards, these types of things. So at that point, the network will be on par with Bitcoin. Much better, but it's it's basically a system like that. The other thing is that Cardano is being built in layers. And so we've separated accounting from that, from computation. So uh, if you look at Bitcoin and Rootstock, that's the closest analogy where Bitcoin's kind of simplistic and you can't do much with the transactions. But if Rootstock works, you'll be able to send Bitcoin to that sidechain and then there you get smart contracts. Now, why do you want to do that? Because then you can support multiple computational models. You can have Ethereum style smart contracts or Neo style smart contracts or maybe even a permission private domain where they run on servers instead of a network. And you can go back and forth between that. And some can be regulated, others can be unregulated and so forth. So you have a lot more flexibility. Second, computation is a higher liability and more complicated endeavor. Uh, you know, just because Bitcoin, you're kind of indemnified for being a miner, doesn't mean being a miner in an Ethereum-style system indemnifies you from legal responsibility. For example, if you look at Tor exit nodes, more than one operator has been arrested for trafficking child pornography. Or BitTorrent operators, more than one person's run into legal hot water for file sharing intellectual property. Um, so in that case, it's a really good idea to segregate your networks. And so you can kind of decide where your liability wants to live and have a Bitcoin-like low liability experience for accounting and then increasingly higher liability for computation, depending upon domain. So we're going to be turning on the test net soon for smart contracts in a separate layer and then we'll be linking that eventually this year, hopefully, with um, the main network. So our hope is to kind of catch up with Ethereum and Bitcoin in terms of features and capabilities. But uh, one of the biggest milestones for us is the specification-driven development. I'll send you a spec after the, uh, the show ends to give you a sense of what they look like. But basically, every part of our system is eventually going to be covered by formal specifications. So we have this really mathy thing for what a wallet should do and a really mathy thing for how our core protocol is going to work and so forth. And that basically means that we now have, instead of an implementation, we actually have a math representation of the design of the system. So anybody can take that and build a reference implementation from it. And it also gives us something to talk around for the improvement proposal. So that's a major milestone for us. How do we write good specs? How do we get people to understand specs? We're probably, for example, for the wallet spec, going to do a series of YouTube lectures on it to annotate it. And then from there, how do we actually create an improvement proposal process based on specifications? Then in 2019, uh, we're going to start turning on the scaling features. So we're going to have sharding and the democracy features of the system. So we have blockchain-based voting and other things. So kind of like what Tezos is uh, talking about. But we have our own system that we're developing out of Lancaster using liquid democracy. And that'll allow the system to start becoming more scalable and also more sustainable. Um, over time, we're also going to be turning on a lot of our sidechains uh, capabilities. So we have paper coming out, we're submitting around May 8th, which is a really beautiful formal model for sidechains. 
And I think we actually have the first formal rigorous security proofs uh, for these things out of any project. And they work on both proof of stake and proof of work systems. But basically, long and short is we're trying to create our own version of interoperability. And so over time, we're going to be dragging more and more of that into our system. And then we're going to look at market standards, like what Interledger is doing with uh, the committee at W3C for Ripple, and then things like Aeon's interoperability protocol and so forth. And our hope is to drag potentially some of those things into our ledger throughout 2018 and 2019 so that we can talk to as many blockchains as possible and listen to them and receive transactions and send transactions to them and so forth. Um, Another big milestone is uh, asset issuance. So we have this work stream called Chimeric Assets, where we wanted to take the ERC-20 standard and extend it and start talking about all different kinds of asset classes. So for example, ERC-20 is kind of modeled like a Bitcoin-style asset where sender pays and it's, it's kind of got a fixed monetary policy. But what if you wanted to have a different monetary policy and also you want to do things like receiver pays? That's an example of like a credit card style transaction. When you go to McDonald's and buy something with a credit card, you generally don't pay a transaction fee. The fee is paid by the merchant. So you could construct assets that way. You could even do fee-less uh, assets. For example, that's what EOS does and Steam does and so forth. So there, so we'd like to create a, a universal framework that allows you to parameterize your asset accordingly and issue your asset. And here's the most important thing, that when you issue it on Cardano, our hope is for it to be a native asset, just like ADA. So you actually pay transaction fees in that asset to the validators instead of having to go through ADA to do that. So it's a big competitive differentiator between us and uh, Ethereum ERC-20 assets. So these are the kinds of things that we expect to do. Now, if you're interested in following our progress, we release weekly reports on Cardano Hub. And we also have a dedicated roadmap website called uh, cardanoroadmap.com. And basically, we have a monthly timer. And every month, we just kind of add to the roadmap. We also release a lot of videos and content on IOHK's YouTube channel. And uh, I tweet a lot, and uh, and also the Cardano Foundation tweets a lot about uh, different things. And our Reddit has, I think, over 50,000 members. And we have several Telegram uh, channels already set up. There's probably about over 100,000 people on our, our social channels now. So the movement's grown a lot. We've tried to build a lot of community management capabilities. Uh, and I'd say the most immediate things on the horizon are going to be the Shelly release and those test nets and so forth and staking and delegation. And then the, also the smart contract side of things. And then 2019 is the kind of the more advanced stuff. Great. And lots of really interesting things. So I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. But thank you very much com- for coming on. Uh, we will be watching this. We would love to have you back on in a, in a few months to tell us more about where you're at and, and talk to us. L- only last question I have here is if you could just share your Twitter handle for the, the people that are interested. Yeah, it's I-O-H-K, I-O-H-K underscore Charles. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks, Charles. Awesome insight into the future of Cardano. And of course, I want to thank my co-host for today's show and for giving me a bit of support on my Blockchain Insider debut, Sarah Feenan and Colin G. Platt. So where can people find you, Sarah? Well, I am on Twitter at Seronimo. And also you can find the company I work for, Clearmatics, at Clearmatics or www.clearmatics.com Brilliant. And you, Colin? I I like how you don't ask where people can find me because it's next to field, obviously. On Twitter, at Colin G. Also, I have to thank the amazing production team here at 11FS, Laura Watkins, our producer, Michael Bailey, our editor, and our assistant producer, Petrit Barisha. 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, FMIs, and anyone with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects or just have a speak of your next event, we hope that you'll get in touch. Hit up our website, 11FS.com, to find out more. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so much and spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to. We will have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.